Bitcoin Roundtable. Random musings and interviews about Bitcoin. Well, good evening, everybody. We are back at uh, Bitcoin Roundtable, episode 21. I am here with Darren. Hello. Uh, Libby. Hello. And we have a special guest this week. He's a very old friend of ours. Not His that name old. is... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he's referring to himself. He's but, a stranger. Uh, we pulled him off the street. It's David Cochimilio. Yeah, he nailed it. David Cochimilio. That's me. Uh, welcome, David. Hello. Thank you for having me. So we wanted Dave to come on our show this week because he, like an awful lot of people out there, is familiar with Bitcoin, but still has an awful lot of questions. Very happy to be here. I don't know a lot about Bitcoin, but I'm very intrigued by it, like many people are. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to ask the questions that need to be asked so that they could be confident and, and uh, educated in their decisions and purchases. So I'm here as JQ Public Rep to uh, ask questions that I think you're all going to want to have answers to. Oh, God. <laughs> did it sound scripted? I practice at home. Who's got the answer? <laughs> Honestly, he, he did not have that written down. We got to fire up some Google here. We got to fire up some Google. This is what people want. Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. Dave, what would be a question you would have regarding Bitcoin? Like, you are familiar that it's a cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. You have some basic knowledge on what Bitcoin is. Yeah. I think the, the biggest questions that I would have about it are, one, what is it? Two, how do I get it? And three, where did it come from? A lot of people have heard about Bitcoin and a lot of people are intrigued by it. What is Bitcoin? Well, the best way to describe it would be to say Bitcoin is a decentralized ledger. That's the blockchain side of it. So much like an accounting system. Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder of the white paper, effectively set up the creation of Bitcoin. He posted that white paper online on a forum right after the banking crisis of 2008 because with all the banks being bought out with taxpayers' money and such, posted this option as a way for any ordinary citizen to start to control their own funds without being under the control of banks including the Fed, which prints money and the inflationary issues that surround fiat, government-issued currency. So with the online ledger, like Satoshi Nakamoto basically came up with a way for two parties to exchange value without having to trust either party. Because everything is transparent. It's transparent and it's all under uh, encrypted protocol and it's decentralized. So the Bitcoin is effectively a computer program that is run on many servers. You could literally set up a computer at home, download the Bitcoin program from GitHub. It's open source, it's open to the public and then set up the node and run it on your server. And you would join one of the hundreds of thousands of servers out there that are running the Bitcoin nodes. So we all become a redundancy in the system. Right, and it's designed that way to prevent a bad actor. All of these nodes run the same program and they all check each other for the same block. And if if a new block it gets written does not agree with the other blocks, then it's rejected. So we become the security for the currency. Right. Wow, that's a pretty powerful thing. It's all through decentralization. So for anyone to be able to hijack the network and for lack of a better terminology, to put simply steal Bitcoin, they would have to take over over 50% of the notes 
of all the servers that are running. If they took over enough of the servers, then eventually someone could write a bad block, and yeah. if he had more than 50% of the servers, they would agree that that bad block is actually a good block. This is like literally democratic currency. Yeah. If everyone doesn't vote that that money was spent properly, then everyone can deny that money to have ever been spent. That's correct. So that is kind of genius. I haven't heard a lot about Bitcoin and about its creation or how it's sustained. And it's always been a curiosity to me, like, how come some hacker somewhere hasn't already cracked this cryptocurrency, which in itself sounds so alien and strange, but it's actually becoming more secure the more people who get on it. So what we're saying really is that the more people that are involved in this, the greater it becomes and the safer it becomes. It's like a community watch of your bank. Like I saw this guy was trying to put this bad block in, so did 50,000 other people. That block's not going to happen. That transfer never occurred. So that sounds like the safest money I've ever heard of. Yeah. Yeah. It's compelling and very interesting, right? The other aspect of it is the mining side of it, which gets a lot of flack. What is mining Bitcoin, the process itself? When uh, Satoshi Nakamoto first created the white paper, and of course, everyone was very excited about it, in the cryptography industry, which is maybe one out of a million people involved, (laughs) and they knew it was a big deal. But there's some complexities involved in it, and it's hard for a lot of people to grasp how big of a deal it really is. It, It takes time, and you almost have to see it in a practical form with other people using it to really start to understand (laughs) why it is such a game changer. But when it comes to getting back to the question of mining Bitcoin, when they first made the program, I think Satoshi Nakamoto actually started mining it on his personal computer, right? Probably a 280 or a 380, (laughs) something at the 40-pounder computer, yeah. You know, he mined a bunch of Bitcoins. And effectively what it is, uh, the mining program, make it simple. Imagine a random number that might be 20 digits long. Yeah. Okay. And then the computer would essentially keep making guesses about what the number is. And then when it got it right, boom, they, they solved the problem. So basically a block gets mined. And when a block gets mined, a certain amount of Bitcoin get created. So with his computer guessing the right number, then he would have created for himself, I don't know at the time, I think probably 100 Bitcoins per block, maybe even more. Yeah. And then he's the owner of the Bitcoins. Right. Okay. Fast forward it maybe five years down the line. A certain amount of Bitcoins get mined every block. And there's a certain amount of blocks that basically more or less get mined per day. A block being a block of... It's a simple way to say it's a memory block that is created and it also contains Bitcoin transactions, an online ledger. So if any Bitcoins were transacted within this time, any information that Bitcoin requires, including the miner addresses, when the Bitcoins were mined, all of that crucial information is written into this block. And when the block gets created, you've made your Bitcoin. And because you ran the computer that guessed the right answer, you get the Bitcoins. It's a reward. Yeah. Now, fast forward into today's <laughs> environment where they use special Bitcoin miner, asynchronous ASICs, ASIC miners. So they're not regular desktop computer type computers. They're specialized just for 
doing math problems. And there are also fields of computers, yeah, giant just, warehouses. Yeah. Oh. There's a whole other thing about mining Bitcoin and energy use. Uh, there has been that, like, it's not green money because it's uh, they use all this power and yeah. that's a yeah. cool the systems. Yeah. And, but yeah. at the same time, I'm sure equal to or more than that amount of power is being used to do the stock market. Never, never bragged about being green money. No? Well, no, at the end of the day, if you think deeply enough about it, and there's some deep thinkers that have thought it through... I certainly haven't. They're basically saying you can't create something of significant value from nothing. That's basically arbitrage, You've right? never been able to. Back when they were mining 100 Bitcoin every couple of hours, you could buy 100, sorry, 1,000 Bitcoins probably for five cents, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Now, because there's warehouses after warehouse after warehouse, full of these mining machines. Competing. And it's a lot harder to mine a Bitcoin now. Because the more people who are trying to mine the Bitcoin makes it harder to mine it. Yeah. Right. Same as gold, same as silver, same as anything. Yes. Limited so, amount of resources, yeah. So imagine a number that's maybe 10 digits long initially when they started. Nowadays, the number would be maybe a thousand digits. Oh, wow. It gets more difficult. Literally astronomical. The more computers that try to guess the number, the more processing power they throw at it, the harder they make the problem to solve. So there's only a certain amount of Bitcoin we get mined every day, no matter how many computers you have. And, and getting back to the transparency of this all, everyone can see the same thing happening. Like this person mined these coins at this day, at this time. This address. This address. Yeah, yeah. if you can't see names, you can see addresses. But you can see the facts. You can see yeah. what's been mined, yes, when absolutely. and how. So there's yeah. no way to counterfeit this because no, it's open source. Right. It's so if transparent. You add up all the Bitcoins, it, it has to add up to the correct amount. Because if the, a block gets written that messes that up, it gets rejected. You can't take 10,000 Bitcoin and throw them into the market. Because of the redundancies and the transparency. If I own a chunk of Bitcoin, you follow the ledger. You know the address. You don't know the person's name, you know the addresses, right? Hmm. So wherever I bought that Bitcoin from, you can kind of follow where it came You from. track its history from birth. You, you can see that $100, who owned it so many times ago and where's it bounced around to. Fragmented, right? Like my 0.2 Bitcoin may be split up from... 500 different sources but it'll all go back to a point where you know somebody made it someone created it you can track it down right so this kind of reminds me like if you look back pre-1933 before the gold standard was abolished that was the same thing you could walk into any bank in 1912 and you yeah. could give them a $20 bill and yeah. they would give you a $20 gold coin yeah. at any point in time. You can go right back to the main source of what the value is of that currency. But in this realm, it's not a physical thing you hold in your hand and say, this is my gold. But you can say, I can track this to the day it was mined and I know it's authentic. The authenticity yeah. is everything. Without it, I mean, all trust is gone. Yeah. So yeah. they've literally built a system that's open source, mind you meaning that it can get attacked. People all know how, how the program is written. Yeah, it's all open, yeah. It's all there. So if you want to try to hack it, they're basically saying, go ahead. You got to get 50% or you got nothing. Wait, There's no reason to try and hack it because you can't win. Because everyone's watching you. What is that analogy where the quarter stuck to the ground, you keep trying to pick it, you can never be able to get it up. Yeah. <laughs> You know, obviously, the, the best way to, to illegally gain Bitcoin is oh. to, to fool somebody into giving, giving it to you. You know, giving away their address or their password. But that happens with everything bank yeah. card, visas, and then some guy just comes in and steals a show. It happens, people. But come with here. the bank, you trust them to hold your money, and if 
they get robbed, you still get your money back. Yeah, yeah. Because right. you pay your fees. It, yeah. <laughs> if your Bitcoin gets robbed, it's probably never coming back. But that would be only because of the fault of your own for giving away your information. That's a good explanation for the mining aspect of it. Now, I've heard there is Bitcoin that is vulnerable and some that is not. Like, you could literally take your Bitcoin and slap it on a uh, memory stick and put it in your drawer. And it's like taking gold out of the bank and put it in a security box. Can't get touched. Can't get uh, That's stolen. Right. That's but right. it's only when you plug that back into the system that it's actually accessible to others for them to take that Bitcoin. Yeah. Honestly, it's best found through Google searches. There's a couple of different protocols out there for trying to store your Bitcoin most securely. Like physically or virtually? You're talking more in a hard wallet, right? Well, there's the Trezor wallets and then Ledger Nano wallets, I believe yes. they're called. There's also the Glacier Protocol, which is a series of steps. So you can go online and go on this website. It'll give you a series of steps to follow to lock away your Bitcoin to the degree of security that... Unvulnerability. It's just not out there. Yeah, but there's always potential issues, right? Like, even if you're offline, maybe there's some spyware on your computer that's still running. You have to be very careful. Like, when you're dealing with significant money, and significant money means different things to different people, but if you're looking at 100 or 500,000 or a couple million dollars worth of Bitcoin, it's worth doing a fresh install on your computer without it ever going online to the internet, right? And like no connections to the internet and going through those procedures with the knowledge that the software is completely clean, fresh install, no spyware because it's never been on the internet, right? Any the CD or the discs I have have been completely scanned or, you know, you've, you've done the downloads off the internet and then you've checked the hashes. Yeah, but Darren, you're talking about people who have 500000 to a million dollars Well, I'm saying this on the Bitcoin. podcast because there's different levels you can go to to protect your Bitcoin. Sure. But and the, it just involves time. But the simplest level you go to to protect your Bitcoin is just keep your mouth shut. Mm. Well, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You know, use a wallet. Everybody needs a wallet. But if you've got a few thousand dollars or even $10,000... Well, Put it in your wallet, but keep your mouth shut. Well, there's the $5 wrench argument, right? You go through all this time to protect your Bitcoin, and all of a sudden someone comes at you when you're walking downtown with their 5 bucks wrench. <laughs> that has happened uh, in Europe, in Russia. What, actual physical robbings? Muggings, kidnappings. I love when people yeah. buy them on their phones, right? So let's say I got a phone and my Bitcoin's on it. Some guy steals my phone. I got a password protection on my phone. Is it hereby useless for them to steal the Bitcoin? Uh, it can be dependent on how much research you've done and which wallets you've installed in your phone. Yeah. They're so for layman's that. out there, when you're saying wall, you mean firewall? No, wallet. wallets. Wallet, sorry, wallet. It's an electronic wallet. That it's an app. Exactly. It's an app. It just it's locks it in there. Okay. Tell you how much Bitcoin you got or whatever, maybe uh -huh. other cryptocurrency. So to break this down even further, when you have a Bitcoin and it's on your phone, it's not just a number that this person can steal. What would you say the essence of the Bitcoin on your phone is? It's just information on your phone. There is no physical form of Bitcoin. It is only virtual. One of the easier ways to interpret it for some might be to give an example like a 3D barcode. When you want to pay something, you just scan the 3D barcode with your app. Yeah. And then you tell how much Bitcoin to send. Right? Okay. Or if you want someone to send you Bitcoin, you show the barcode on your app and then someone sends it to you. So that barcode is representative of that individual Bitcoin. Well, 
The barcode is representative of your address. So it's like a client card at a bank. You're just sending it to an address. Okay. Right? Anyone can own the address. It's not tied to a name officially. Bitcoin doesn't care what your name is. Just the addresses. They just care what the address is. Yeah. And it's an alphanumeric. 26 different characters. Yeah. You couldn't guess somebody's. People are doing crazy things as far as trying to protect them. A word from either side tattooed on their body and memorize the middle part. Oh my God. <laughs> all, all of what you need to do because if you lose it, it's gone. Could you imagine someone like, like tattooing like, like yeah. a visa number like, across their forearm missing three digits? Oh, no, no. That's me right there. There's strippers in Vegas, right? That have their Bitcoin address tattooed on them. Why? Oh, so they could send them Bitcoin? Send them Bitcoin? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. The client, the oh my God, that is unbelievable. Untraceable, right? Like it, oh uh, my goodness. Just, so instead of like sweeping up the dollar bills when they're done, they go home and check their computer and be like, oh, I got like this yeah, much tips tonight. Exactly. That is unbelievable. So anyone can have a Bitcoin address, right? We should obviously have one on our website. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, years ago, I saw a commercial of a guy in a trench coat and he walks into the store and then he just walks out the door and then as he gets to the door after he walks through a scanner the woman's like, uh, excuse me sir and he turns around and he's like oh you forgot your receipt and it just showed that ease of purchase where you just have yeah. to have it on you you bring it through the door yeah. and it's all done it's all tagged. so that that is the foreseeable future in your opinion uh, oh yeah, yeah. oh sure with purchasing it where it's just yeah. going to be like there won't be any physical attributes to it at all and when you look at virtual and you look at bitcoin and you look at uh, interact for instance, how often do you really touch cash unless you actually deal with cash being paid to you? Mm -hmm. You don't really touch cash. I honestly will go long time without ever touching physical cash. We, we were talking about this earlier and how in Africa right now, there's a huge thing where the banks are falling apart. Literally, ATM machines are off and they're not working. Banks are closed all different days and hours. But what the people have done to empower themselves is that they have the apps on their phone. So it, whether it's a beggar or a, a busker on the side of the road with a cell phone or someone at the at the market they can simply go up to them exchange these numbers and transfer funds through their phones now i think that's that's a lot more secure for people but i think the hardest part is to convince people of that security within technology because i believe they'll grow into it it's very hard to teach someone a generation older than myself and even my own generation but i believe the next generation are just gonna dive right into it. well they're doing it now even while i am alive they will not be printing any physical currency why why do you need it we're going right out of it at the end of the day I don't do anything criminal with my money. No. So the fact that you feel compelled to track every transaction I make, it's it's this giant big brother overseer and it hampers everything, right? Because all of a sudden, if you want to send money to someone on the other side of the world, yep. it's going to take three days and temper yep. Bitcoin though. Instant. All these migrating workers, right? That are sending money home to the family, they're all using Bitcoin now. And you made mention earlier that there's no with, fees to use the Bitcoin or transfer. Fee, fees are really low. I could Go send ahead. $5 or $500 million yep. to somebody in Nepal. And with Bitcoin, it's $0.15 cents right now. $0.15, cents, regardless of the amount. Right. So that is unheard of. And, you know, within 15 minutes, it's there. And there's no limit. To, I recently had a, a thing, not to get into detail, but I had a thing where there was money being transferred over $10,000 from one person to another, different provinces. Oh, yeah. And, well, and to do that, yeah, it, it triggered red flag, red flag, red flag, yeah. fraudulent, fraudulent. So 
long story short, we had to do it in increments of like a couple thousand a day, which was the max limit. And you're telling me that for 15 cents a transaction, we can send unlimited funds to anyone we want anywhere in the world. And yeah. Yeah. Now, in January, it was $30 a transaction. Oh, wow. The network got congested. Well, before they implemented SegWit, right? There's only so many transactions you can write to each block, right? And a block is processed every 10 minutes for Bitcoin. And everybody started doing transactions and exchanges, especially because people were trading cryptos and they were moving Bitcoin back and forth as a form of currency to buy crypto. And before a segregated witness came in, segregated witness uh, was a game changer, mind you. And now the exchanges have implemented it. And so the traffic has dropped off by a massive percentage. So, yeah. And then with the Lightning Network coming on, which is an off-chain network. So it's kind of like building a secondary network on top of the Bitcoin network. Say I go to Starbucks or whatever and I buy coffee every once in a while, right? And I want to use my Bitcoin. What I would wind up doing is opening up a channel. Just stick with me here for a minute, Mm -hmm. right? So I would preload the channel, a Lightning Network channel with funds. Say I put 50 bucks on it. And then I go to Starbucks or anywhere else and I just pay a couple bucks here, a couple bucks there, blah, 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 until my 50 bucks is up. And then I close the channel. So when you open the channel and when you close the channel are basically the only times you're writing to the block. The rest of the time it's off the chain, they call it. So it's not expensive. So it gets super cheap. When you're doing transactions with Starbucks, it's like two cents or five cents, something like that. It's also instant. So that's just coming up about six months to a year before it really starts to happen. So it's kind of like charging up one of those like blank Visa cards and you just charge that up instead of taking a big wad of money with you, you throw it on this card, use that card when it's empty, you're done and that's the block. Well, the issue with Bitcoin partly was when I use the main chain, legacy, to send you money, because the block is only written every 10 minutes, your transaction, it could be up to 10 minutes or even 15 minutes before the transaction's confirmed. When it comes to quick purchases, right, in and out. It's at the counter for 20 minutes waiting for your purchase. Right, for confirmation. The Lightning Network is really meant to solve that as well as drastically reduce the cost. Or what I'm liking even more is the liquidity network. Yeah, well, that's a challenge to do the Lightning Network. It's there's competing forces, but (laughs) all you really need to know is there are many thousands of programmers out there that are highly capable that are focused on ensuring that Bitcoin becomes super cheap, super reliable. Debit card, what's a debit card transaction cost? To the, the purchaser, nothing. To the payee, I think it costs them like 3%. You have a bank account, a lot of bank accounts now say, oh, okay, you can do up to 20 or 50 debit transactions a month without fees. And after that, they start charging 40 cents, 60 cents a shot. So for all you people out there listening, before I used to think that Bitcoin, I thought about it in chunks. Like if you bought a Bitcoin, you know, it was 20 grand or it was 12 grand or whatever it was, the value of it. I didn't think about the fragmentation of that. I always thought like if you sell a Bitcoin, you can't buy a eighth of a Bitcoin or a hundredth of a Bitcoin or a millionth of a Bitcoin, but you can. And that's how it's transacted. I think there's a stigma out there where people think that if I have a Bitcoin, it's like I have a piece of gold and I have to sell that piece of gold in a whole lump sum. No, you can use this every day to buy your groceries, pay your bills, like any other currency. As long as it's accepted, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, on Reddit, there's guys out there who basically the world within which they occupy, they went to the 
grocery store, talk to the manager, talk to him about Bitcoin. The manager's like, wow, that's really cool. That sounds very secure. (laughs) So I'll take your Bitcoin. And then his landlord, oh yeah, I'll take Bitcoin. I've heard of purchases in Toronto where people were only accepting Bitcoin for purchase of a house over a million dollars. They're very selective, right? But people can't say that. They can say, I will only accept this currency. More and more people out there who are just living their lives on Bitcoin. And they had... They basically talk to people, to the shops they go and purchase to, and it's a pretty easy sell, right, to get them to accept Bitcoin. Minimal and risk. For the most part, they do. And if they don't, then they take their business elsewhere. But there, there are many people out there right now living their life without cash, like just only Bitcoin. Could they be- get their paycheck, they buy Bitcoin, they put it all into Bitcoin. So like how some in. people use visas now where they're like, I use my visa for everything to get the points and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, end yeah. of the month or end of the week, I yeah. pay my visa and that's the same. But it's reverse. It's like, I'm getting this Bitcoin as a currency yeah. and then I'm breaking it down so I can disperse it for my needs. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting and excellent way to, to drive adoption too, right? Because all of a sudden you have all these vendors now that have Bitcoin, right? Because they've given an address, so now they want to find a way to convert that back or use the Bitcoin to buy other things, right? Chain in their suppliers. That, that's the goal of it's it. It's a long game, Yes, but it might not take that long. But for a long game plan, that's a pretty big payoff to change the way people spend and, and buy. Look at a crypto like a dollar. It's just a different currency that people need to get onto. Mm-hmm. Most people are afraid of it because they don't understand it. Or are they've heard it, bad press on it. And well, initially, the crypto. banks were totally trying to disassemble its uh, validity. They Bit- can't control Bitcoin it. They can't charge it. a threat to banks. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so I don't like that. So do we. Money is very effective at suppressing threats. Yeah. Uh, you could even point to Google. But basically, not allowing any cryptocurrency ads or any oh. type of advertising about cryptocurrency now. Yeah. C- completely banned. On Google? Yeah. Wow. So the the most forward-thinking currency in the world right now is not being accepted by the one of the biggest companies in the world right now. Or Facebook. Due to fear, you think? Oh, or, we can't advertise on Facebook. Well, and hold on. And a lot of that has to do with fraud. There have been so many fraudulent advertising. There's been some, but, you know... No, there's been a lot, there, and We've talked it, about this. They're using it as a tool. Sure, they're taking it and running with it, but... But most smart people been. now think that both Facebook and Google are going to come up with their own cryptocurrency. That's why, yeah. So, Something they can control. Yeah. What better way to have your own cryptocurrency do well and own it. When you're the search engine <laughs> of the world and you don't let anyone else advertise, now, come up with your own. A company like Google it probably has the most processing power of any company in the world. What's stopping Google from mining all this Bitcoin? It's not feasible, really. See, Google doesn't really have ASIC miners. They could spend a lot of money and buy ASIC miners. Yes. But they would spend more money and power with their conventional service. Electricity. It, it would cost them more electricity then it would pay them in Bitcoin. I didn't realize it was that big of a cost. Using the computers they're using, because the computers are not optimized for solving mathematical problems that Bitcoin presents. Is that much of a difference? Recently now, they've come out with quantum computing. They have nitrogen-cooled processors. Is that going to make a big leap into Bitcoin, do you think, in time? Like that processing power that can come from quantum computing? I mean, there's some people arguing, yes fear mongers type thing. (laughs) Most people in the know, like MIT level thinkers in quantum computing, say it's at least 20 years away. 
for quantum computing to get into yeah. the Bitcoin field. If quantum computing really happens, what would happen really is that it would be able to break the security that Bitcoin relies on. Oh, okay. I was speaking more from a mining front, but you mean more of a security front. From a mining front, it would change it, sure. But what would happen is maybe IBM or MIT or someone has a quantum computer that they use. And so all of a sudden they start mining some Bitcoin. And it's advantageous for them for a little while. But then the rest of the world catches up, right? It doesn't take long. Hmm. And so then you've just... Accelerated that process. You've pushed the bar up. And it's not going to change things. It's just going to make it a lot harder to mine Bitcoin. Yes. And you were saying earlier, uh, off air, you were saying something about there's a limited number of Bitcoin that can be mined. 21 million. By consensus, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Yes. For that consensus to change, you would have to compel over 50% of the network to decide to change it. Okay. You can't buy out that many people. No, it can't change. You can't collectively put that many people together. That's why forks happen. Bitcoin forks all the time. I don't know what forking is. It means uh, that if there's a disagreement in the community, then there's a determination made. It's a programmatic disagreement, right? Like the program has to change. Somebody wants to change the program. So for Bitcoin Cash, they wanted to make larger block sizes. I think from one or two megs to eight megs would allow more transactions to get put in so it would be cheaper for transactions to occur. What happens is they all agree saying, okay, after this block number is written, the first block is block one. I don't know what number block it is now. They basically all said, okay, after block, whatever, 185,362, that's the final block before a fork happens. So after that block, Bitcoin will split into two different coins. And it turns out now that it, the one coin is Bitcoin Cash or Bcash, and the other coin is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is still named Bitcoin because the larger percentage of people followed that fork. If the larger percentage of people followed the other fork, they would call that one Bitcoin. Oh, okay. So Bitcoin, it's the majority nor node holders agreed upon protocol, I guess you could say. Democratic currency. <clears throat> I thought we were going for that vape. So that's what <laughs> happens in a fork. So when say somebody decides that, okay, well, we, we want to make an extra million Bitcoin. What would happen is if enough people agreed, they go, okay, well, let's make a fork. Let's fork Bitcoin and we'll call this one Bitcoin 25 mil or something, right? And then the other one, Bitcoin 21 mil, whichever one the majority followed, we still call it Bitcoin. And by majority following, how would someone follow one or the other? If you're running your computer server at home and you're running a Bitcoin node, you would decide if you wanted to update your program to follow the one for With your software on your own computer, that's your vote. <coughs> Correct. See, in my opinion, moving forward in the future, I think that all democracy in time will be electronic. Like what's stopping everyone from having some kind of a secure vote and some kind of problem comes up or something has to be done uh, politically, economically for a country, everyone should have their say in it. But what you're saying is that in Bitcoin that exists now where people can choose what fork, literally, which fork in the road they want to take. Certainly. Well, that just sounds too easy and smart. (laughs) Look, you know, you're absolutely right. The electronic option for making decisions in democratic society is by far the most efficient and 
up till now without the concept of a trustless system it is open to interpretation as to whether it is better or worse as security wise right like consider like the voting machines in the u.s where there's a lot of interesting information out there it looks like some of these voting machines if not a lot of voting machines have basically just been taken over and hacked Mm -hmm. people voting who aren't alive anymore people who didn't vote are claiming to be voted or you know people just taking control of the voting machines and having to spit out whatever data they wanted to yeah right the interesting thing about blockchain there's a coin out there called horizon state where it's literally a coin that's based on a blockchain designed for secure electronic voting So the value of the coin lies in the fact that if you're a, a state or a province or a city and you want to have a vote, then you would pay some amount of money to employ the Horizon State voting system where it's all on blockchain on a decentralized network so it can't really be hacked so you know your votes are valid. It's transparent, just like Bitcoin. Yeah, what you just mentioned with the whole democratization, the electronification of democracy, and it's happening. It's still out on the fringes and people don't really know it or understand it yet, but it's there. The tools are all there. What you have to get past is all the established money that likes to keep things the bureaucracy in where it is now because there's too much money to be made. So there's a reason why I don't watch professional sports. I don't believe these people should be making that kind of money. But I do believe in the infrastructure and I do believe in the Green Bay Packers. They are the only team that is owned by the city. And I think that every stadium in the world should be owned by its own city. The players should yeah. be from that city to play. The Green Bay Packers are not owned by the city. The Green Bay Packers are owned by the shares they sell for the Green Bay Packers. And people all over the world own those shares. So that everyone has this stadium, this this infrastructure within their city. And if those people were to utilize that system properly, we could have instant democracy. You can have that playing field not being for just people who are chasing a ball or a puck, but it could be used for people chasing dreams, people who are chasing goals in government and in economics. You have your entire city come in in segments and you have these people tell them what they think is right, what is wrong, which direction they should go in. And with as easy as having a double-sided piece of paper, black on one side, white on the other, people could vote in real time holding it above their heads. You get the blimp to fly over, they take a picture, instant digital democracy. And that's something I've never understood why we don't utilize the infrastructure we have already built, not just for entertainment, but for actual voting, for actual voices to be heard. But I see that the transparency would be there. You can look down, you can tell that yeah, guy sitting in row 100, seat 8G, voted this way. It's totally transparent. So I, I kind of see how this kind of could be that way with economics, where everyone can see what everyone else is doing, anonymity being there, just having the addresses, but I think it could change the world if everyone was able to vote on everything and their voices could be heard, not just with uh, not just with Bitcoin, not just with sports, but with, with every decision the country makes. Certainly. Hmm. Not all hope is lost. Take a look at Switzerland. I just learned about it a couple weeks ago. I believe that any policy changes made in Switzerland basically has to be approved by the public. 
Yes. So they constantly have these referendums, I guess, if you will. Public uproars. You get to vote. Do you want this to happen or not? Oh, should we increase taxes on somebody who's making between 30000 and 40000 Swiss francs a year? We want to increase their taxes by 2% or blah, blah, blah. By it right, the public has a legal justification to hold a referendum on anything like that. And so what happens is the politicians already basically know what the public is going to vote yay or nay for. So most of the proposals and the changes that the politicians make are always in the favor of the public. As they should be. They work for the public. Yeah. In North America, it's the exact opposite, where the banks and the government have all the power and the people are at the, at the end of the right. rope. How such little things can make such a huge difference. <laughs> Okay, well, it looks like we got a lot of content. We're going to split this episode into two parts, so stay tuned, people. Bitcoin Roundtable. Random musings and interviews about Bitcoin. 